Greetings to all my cool cats and cool kittens. They try to copy our style, but they stay frostbitten. From the broadcast to the podcast, it is your man DM Cool. And this is Cool Radio. What we doing? You can catch me on your TV, even on the radio. Pop up at our blog spot, hand on my Uwego. We invading airwaves. Oh, you didn't know? Your ass better call somebody! Yes, y'all, yes, y'all, tell a friend to tell a friend that we are back online. Once again, it's your man, DM Cool, and this is another edition of Cool Radio, where the cool is in full effect. Ladies and gents, I have a very fun show planned for you guys today. Um, it won't be the normal uh, the normal standard that we usually go by as far as just breaking down the latest stories of the week and what have you, let that just breathe, length of the week, all that stuff. Today, we're going to be doing a special broadcast or podcast rather of cool radio and it is going to be our cool review special okay so the last time i gave y'all a cool review was back in i want to say may or june uh upon release of kendrick lamar's latest album mr morale and the big steppers uh and yeah it's been a while since we've uh, done that one that being said, we have a review that I want to share with you guys today, and that is the review for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Now, you guys already know, if you've been listening to the show for at least the last five years, that you know I'm a huge Black Panther fan. I'm a huge Black Panther fan. Uh, I love the first movie to me. It's like an instant classic in my eyes. A few things here and there that I wasn't particularly a fan of in the first one. But beyond that, I mean, it's one of the best superhero films I've ever watched in my life. Um, And so that being said, the sequel has come out for Black Panther. And that is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Now, a lot of events have taken place you know, since the release of the first film, right? And events within the MCU, but then also events that happen in real life. So those events include, you know, Wakanda opening up its borders to the rest of the world in light of what happened with Killmonger. Um, Then we get an Infinity War that Black Panther and the nation of Wakanda helps out the Avengers in defending the time, or not the time stone, the uh, mind stone uh, that was placed in Vision's head. And as they face off against hordes of Thanos' creatures and minions or what have you. Then the snap happens. And along with the snap uh, were, were the disappearance of T'Challa and Shuri. And, and many members of Wakanda's forces. Then we get to Avengers Endgame where all those people, including T'Challa and Shuri, reappear. And T'Challa and Shuri in particular reappear in epic, epic cinematic fashion. Thinking about it. Gives me chills. All right, so we have that. We had that happen, and then the aftermath of like the snap and people coming back and what have you. However, in real life, unfortunately, we had the tragic passing of the actor who played T'Challa and Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman, and that was met with a lot of grief, a lot of heartache, as you may already know. But then that led to the decision from. Ryan Coogler, Nate Moore, and then Kevin Feige to no longer recast the character. A very premature decision, if I may add, which I've said in uh, multiple you know, podcasts of Cool Radio. But then that led to the sparking and the creation of the hashtag recast the child of movement, which was spearheaded and created by the great, in my opinion at least, the, the great Emmanuel Noisette of Eman's Movie Reviews. And I actually had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, sometime last year in the height of, you know, Recast a Child and what have you. And I definitely put my name on that, on that, on that change.org, you know, signature piece as well. So a lot of those uh, events have taken place during, you know, the release of the first ever Black Panther film up until now. And then, of course, we get the trailers for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And obviously, we're tuning in to see how they handle T'Challa's loss and what they do with it and what have you. And the trailers look very good. They were very well put together. Uh, no knocks on the trailers. Just outside of 
us having to mourn Chadwick once again because apparently Chadwick and T'Challa are one of the same, which is not the case at all. I mean, Chadwick Boseman once said himself that whenever he's playing a character, he wants the audience to see the character that he's playing and not Chadwick himself. So you look at his movies like Black Panther, um, Thurgood Marshall, Get On Up, where he plays James Brown, um, uh, 42, where he plays Jackie Robinson, 21 Bridges, where he plays a, a police detective from New York, so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, right? All those performances, you cannot t- tell me that every single one of those performances are identical with one another. No, they're completely different. Even the movie that he did, uh, A Message from the King, that was on Netflix where he plays a South African. I mean, you're not going to tell me that that was the same as him playing T'Challa. Yeah, they both had accents, but that's where it ended. That's literally where it ended. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent right now. Um, I say all this to say that the film is now out. It's been out for roughly a week now as of this recording. And I saw the film once, actually. I was going to see it a second time, but I haven't had the time to do it. Uh, but it's still pretty fresh in my mind nonetheless. And with that being said... I would say that the film overall was pretty good. It was a pretty good film. Let's break it down. By the way, and I haven't said it yet officially on the pod, uh, but you'll know by the time you see the title of this pod. But this is a full-on spoiler discussion and spoiler review of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So if you have yet to see the movie, press pause on this. See the movie. Come back to this pod, and then we can engage in discussion and possibly even debate. And I'm and I'm open to that as well. But let's engage into this discussion, uh, into this review of Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Let's get into it. So, I'm gonna start with the pros. I'm gonna start with the con, or sorry, start with the pros, move to the cons, and then eventually get to my overall thoughts on the movie but before we do all that let me just give you guys a general plot breakdown of the film itself mind you i'm assuming that with you listening to this that you've already seen it but let's just refresh our memories before we just jump into everything all willy-nilly right so general plot of the film is that you know chadwick or sorry not just, again they're putting one they're two they're putting two people one into the same i can't stand it anyways t'challa king t'challa has passed away. This this opens up with the film um, due to an unknown illness, which I'll get to later on in my review. And basically, a lot of people around the world now see Wakanda as being destabilized because not only do they not have their king, but they don't have their protector. So certain people are conspiring to go against Wakanda based on the vibranium, but also based on where they stand in the world. Like, are they allies to us? Are they enemies? On top of that, Shuri is trying to navigate the loss of her brother and basically has gone full on science with her work, basically ignoring, you know, tradition and religion and everything in between. Like she, she was already not a fan of those things to begin with in the first film, but now she's like full on, Head first, I don't believe in any of that spiritual mumbo-jumbo stuff. I only believe in technology and what works, you know, in front of my eyes. So that's where she's at. Um, On top of that, we also get discovery of an unknown underwater kingdom known as Talokan. Not Atlantis, but Talokan. And it is spearheaded by whom they call Kukulkan, or as his enemies would say, Namor. So Namor has now been introduced into the MCU officially. And again, the, the funny thing is with when it comes to Namor, the whole debate is do you pronounce it Namor? Is it Namor? Is it Namor? What and it's funny because they play around with the pronunciation of his name within the film as well. But the way that he says it is Namor. And I like the meaning behind the name, but again, we'll get to that later on. Anyways, he becomes a major player in this film and he wants to know where Wakanda stands. Um in terms of aligning with the Talokans. And the main reason why they're introduced into this film is because, you know, there's been an American who has built a device that's able to detect vibranium underwater. And there is plenty of vibranium close to where Talokan is. So therefore, they see the Americans intruding and they attack the Americans and they kill all the Americans. Um, and they also find out that the person who made 
the vibranium detector is Riri Williams, which explains her inclusion into this film. So the Wakandans now have to find uh, Riri Williams so that in, so that a war doesn't break out between America and Wakanda, seeing how they feel as though it was the Wakandans that attacked the Americans because of the fact that they're looking for a vibranium. So there's definitely a lot that's happening in this film in terms of who is siding with who, who is aligning with whom, and it makes for a very intriguing, you know, geopolitical thriller of sorts, if you will. So that's basically the, the basis of the film. Now, here are my pros of the film. Here are officially my pros of the film now that we've gotten the breakdown out of the way. In terms of the performances, I thought everyone had a very good performance all across the board. My standouts, however, would be Winston Duke as M'Baku, Angela Bassett as Ramonda, and Chilok Huerta as Namor. When it comes to Angela Bassett as Ramonda, I thought her performance between the first film and the second film was night and day. Now, that's not to say that she was bad, in the first film, I just thought that in the first film, she was given very little to do, very little to work with. It was even to the point where you didn't necessarily have to have Angela Bassett as Queen Ramona. It could have been anyone else. It could have been Viola Davis. It could have been anyone else. They just, it just felt like they wanted to use her name as part of the billing of the film to attract more people to come and see the film. It didn't really feel like she had a whole lot to do within the first one. She just felt like more of a figurehead. It's like, yes, I'm part of the royal family. I don't really have any governing powers, but I'm a figurehead, much to the comparison of Queen Elizabeth when she was alive. That's what it felt like in the first film. But in this one, she has a lot more to work with. Like, she's now the actual ruler of Wakanda because of the fact that T'Challa has passed away and that Shuri is still the princess for the time being. Like, she was actually going into meetings with the with the UN and conferences and what have you and talking about, you know, the state of the union as it pertains to Wakanda. Um, I love the, the opening scene or one of the opening scenes where she's at the UN and France, of all people, was calling out Wakanda because they hadn't shared their resources with the world as of yet. Uh, but then she's going on this monologue about how, you know, we know what you hear, we know what you speak saying how we're we're now weakened because you know we don't have our protector anymore and while this is happening you see uh french soldiers invade a base um a wakandan base basically that was stationed out in the middle of the ocean i think and you see them taking hostages but then the dormelage enter and they just wreck shop with everyone including the the newest member that we're introduced to which is uh Ineka. And they're just, again, they're kicking all sorts of ass. The action scenes look dope in, in, in this monologue. And then once Ramona reaches the end of her monologue, you see members of the Dora Milaje drag out, you know, these, these, these French operatives, you know, by their, by their cuffs, essentially, and have them kneel down. And she says to the French people and the rest of the UN, this is just a warning. Try that shit again. And see what happens. And I love that. Because I think that's one aspect of the first film that was missing. The fact that we didn't really see. Well besides from Killmonger of course. We didn't see anyone try to invade Wakanda. To accentuate how protected and how fortified Wakanda is. Because that was a big thing in the comics. Like there's always been people who've tried to step into Wakanda. They tried to invade it. try to colonize it. Or do something to disrespect Wakanda in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so we actually got to see that play out on screen as opposed to just reading it in, in a comic book panel. So I was glad that they that they had, they had that aspect of the comic book in the movie. So I, I was very happy about that. But going back to Ramonda, she had a very good performance in this film. She was given a lot more to work with. Some of her monologues uh, were very riveting. So the the, the one in the beginning, as well as the one that she had with Okoye when Shuri was basically captured by the Talokans as well as Riri. And she was just railing in on Okoye. And, you know, it was that scene that you saw in the trailer. You know, I'm the queen of the most powerful nation in the world. Have I not lost enough or whatever the case may be? Like, she gave a very riveting performance. And I think that's the one that a lot of people like on YouTube and the podcast are alluding to her being a possible um, 
Academy Award nominee, you know, going into the, the Oscars in February. So that'll be interesting to see if she does get a nod for that. Um, she definitely gave one of her better performances that I've seen from her in, in as many years. So that was really good on her part. So she definitely had a lot more to work with. Um, and then Mbaku, I thought was good as well. Um, uh, any scene that he was in, he damn near commanded it. And like, you knew, you felt his presence there. You felt his presence in any scene that he was in. It's like, yes, that's Mbaku. That is the leader of the Jabari tribe. Like that is him. And he was used as, he was one of the comic relief, uh, valves in this film. And what I liked is that, it wasn't overdone, like, whenever he was on screen. It was like, okay, this worked in this particular scene. We needed that moment of, of levity. It worked. And then as far as, you know, Tunal Cuerta as Namor, and I'm going to get into him um, later on, just a little bit later on, rather, I felt that he brought a certain level of gravity to the Namor character that we were all looking for, or I was looking for, at least. Like, he was very morally gray, um, he was willing to do anything to protect his people. Um, and it showed how hot tempered and how, you know, reckless that he can be in, in, in those moments. I don't think he was being vindictive or vengeful or spiteful, uh, just for the sake of it. Similar to how kind of Killmonger was because Killmonger, although he wanted to see certain people liberated, he was also very self-serving, uh, in the first film where is in this one, when it came to Namor, he was like, yo, I will lay it all on the line for my people. If I even suspect that you are going to hurt my people or compromise us in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to attack. And you may not like who he attacked or who he killed in the process, but he stuck to his word. He stuck to his word as a king, as a ruler of his people. So I'm not even mad at, well, I mean, of course you're mad at him for, for, the, for the things that he did, like flooding Wakanda, for example, and killing Ramona in the process. But he saw them as a threat based on what happened uh, when they were all, when uh, Sherwood was down in Talokan. Like, two of his people ended up being killed. Again, context is everything, but all he saw were, were two of his own people being killed by Wakanda. So he's like, oh, okay, that's what we're going to do? All right, bet. Boom. So I thought that was very, I thought he had a very interesting dynamic and I do like the layers of, of, uh, Namor. I didn't think he was very, I didn't think it was flat or one note or anything like that. But then that leads me into my next point, the origin of Namor and how Talokan came to be. And it was interesting because they mentioned how it was vibranium that turned them into ocean creatures. Uh, once, you know, the colonizers came in and infected people with the smallpox. And this is relating to, you know, their Mesoamerican roots when they were part of the Mayan tribes and what have you. So I thought that was really interesting how they tied um, real-life historical events and they kind of merged it with, with the fiction of Wakanda, of Wakanda Forever, rather. So I thought it was pretty cool how they did that. And it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like a woke moment or anything like that. It felt pretty natural and it explained Namor's hatred for the surface world because in the comics Namor hates humans he hates purebred humans he hates them all like he hates them just as much as Magneto maybe even worse so like he's just like yo screw humankind um I forget even humans I don't even like people who walk on land all of you surface dwellers can get it I don't care if you're a human if you're a mutant all y'all can get these nuts. That was basically his mentality, and I respect it because he was he he kept that same energy all throughout the film. And so, anyways, um, when it comes to his origin story, they talk about the vibranium underwater and how they used it as a way to, uh, you know, kind of revitalize their people and give them new life. So instead of them just being regular humans, they turn into, you know. Talokanians or however, you know, whatever the vernacular is for their people. And basically, they all turned blue. And Namor was still within the womb of his mother at the time. So she drank it. But then she turns into a Talokanian. They go underwater. They, you know, recreate their own civilization. But then she gives birth to him underwater, which is which kind of explains why he doesn't change in the same um, fashion that, that they do. Instead... It's more of just, okay, yeah, we're, you know, we're blue people. But him, he looks human, minus the wings on his feet. 
And then he alludes to that as being part of his mutation. Not to mention the fact that he's lived for like four or 500 years at that point. So he ages very slowly uh, because of his mutation. So not to mention, they also named, they also name dropped the word mutant slash mutation within the film. So they're letting you know that mutants are a thing within the MCU now. I mean, they've done that, you know, in, um, in Ms. Marvel already and a couple of other properties as well, just alluding to it. So anyways, I love the fact that they handled that part very well. And I love the fact that he explains the origin of the name Namor. So the name Namor in Spanish means the child without love. And I found it interesting that he said that his enemies call him Namor because it was a colonizer who called him Namor. And obviously he hates colonizers. So the name behind the, the, uh, the uh, or sorry, the meaning behind the name is the child without love because Namor killed off a, a ton of, you know, the colonizers when they invaded on, you know, their their sacred land. Um, and that was the land that his mother wanted to be buried in because she was first human. She was human before a Talokanian. So anyways, I love how they handled that part. I thought that part was really good. Um, and it gave, you know, new gravitas to the name of Namor. And I think a lot of people were very apprehensive about, you know, quote unquote, race swapping Namor um, and making this a potentially woke thing or whatever. But I didn't get that. And outside of how they handled it, I think the best aspect of it was going back into the comics and realizing how racially ambiguous that Namor has always been. I mean, when you look at him, like in the classic comics, he literally looks like Spock from Star Trek. There are times where he looks white. There are times where he looks Asian. There have been times where he kind of looks Arabic. Hell, there's even a time where he looked Latino. I mean, if you go back to the Christopher Christopher Priest run of Black Panther and you see Namor, he, he has like darkened skin and what have you, and it kind of makes him look more Latino. Um, so yeah, he's always been a racially ambiguous character as far as his aesthetic goes. So with them making him, you know, uh, Latino, essentially, and then on top of that, making him part of like a Mesoamerican uh, ethnic group, I didn't mind it. Not only did I not mind it, but I love the way that they tied that culture into into the Talokan people. And it's the same thing that Ryan Cougar did with the first Black Panther movie where you have Wakanda, which is obviously a fictional nation, but that he puts in real, real life influences of African culture into Wakanda to create Wakanda. So he basically did the exact same thing before the, the Mesoamerican people. So I thought that was really dope. Uh, so they they handled that really well, and I think that was arguably my favorite aspect of the film. Uh, beyond that, I thought the dialogue and the writing of the film was on point. I didn't feel as though there was any woke agenda. Um, I think the only thing that kind of came off as like slightly woke was when the Riri character mentioned something about being young, black, and gifted, and I'm just like, you know, we're kind of past that. Like we're like we've seen people like Shuri, who was 16, being the leader. Uh, Wakanda's, you know, technological advancements or what have you. So I think it's a little redundant to say young, black, and gifted. And I get it. She's not Wakandan. But again, it's a little redundant. That's about it. Um, I didn't, that wasn't a huge gripe of me, gripe for me. But like, that would be like the only quote unquote woke thing I, I can really get in the film as far as being like overtly woke. Um, but other than that, I thought the, the dialogue was great. I felt like they didn't try to shove anything in anyone's face as far as, tr well, Besides the trauma of, you know, losing, you know, T'Challa and Chadwick in real life, I, I think that was the only thing where the writing kind of, like, did not favor me in that regard. Uh, but beyond that, I thought the writing and the dialogue w was very good. And the main criticism that a lot of people have been having with Marvel in Phase 4, especially in 2022 alone, is the fact that there's been too much comedy and that they've been over-reliant on the comedy, whether it was... You know, Thor, Love, and Thunder being the biggest culprit of that. Uh, She-Hulk, where the comedy wasn't even funny, but they were relying on it. Um, I guess Miss Marvel to a certain extent, but Miss Marvel to me was more of like a family, like a family channel, Disney channel programming type of series. So I expected that to be the case. And then even with Doctor Strange, there were comedic moments in there where I felt like they didn't fit. You just put it in there just for the sake of fulfilling your mandate of having comedy in an MCU film. So, yeah, like, I felt like there were, I felt like this was very refreshing. 
the comedy was there when it needed to be there. Uh, so I felt like that was very refreshing. But yeah, the, the dialogue made perfect sense as far as what I wanted to see, you know, in this film for the most part. For the most for the most part. I, I still feel as though there are a few things that that they were missing. Um, but I'll get to that into my con section later on. Speaking of the writing, that leads me to uh, Shuri's character. So one of my main concerns going into this movie, before it even came out, before we even saw a trailer, was how are they going to handle Shuri's character progression into the Black Panther? Because we all pretty much knew that it was a done deal that she would become the Black Panther, right? If you're at the very least basing this on the comics. Um, so... Our thing is we we've only seen before this movie at least we've only seen Shuri in Black Panther, Infinity War, and Endgame. Infinity War and Endgame she had very little screen time, not enough to you know progress her character any further. Whereas Black Panther it was our introduction introduction to Shuri within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and she was for the most part the comedic relief within the film, and she was someone who was seen as a person who didn't believe in the Panther religion didn't really give it any interest in politics and her fighting skills were very basic at best in this film they corrected a lot of that but they did it in a way where it didn't feel forced and it didn't feel rushed either so one of the biggest things that Shuri's dealing with in the film was her belief in the panther religion and that's her that's basically her, one of her if not her main arc in the film so they handled that very well in my opinion um, as far as, as far as the politics go, uh, I guess they somewhat handled that. They somewhat handled that to a certain extent. Uh, but then as far as her combat skills, that's still the thing that's still lacking for me when it comes to the Shuri character. Like even, and I don't want to get into too many specifics because I want to save that for later on, but I think that's the one thing where they didn't really address properly or didn't really translate for me, but again, I'll get to more of that later on. But overall, as far as how they handled the Shuri character, given the circumstances, given what, what they decided to be a major plot point within the film, I would say they handled it pretty well. They handled it pretty well. So I'll say that much. Um, as far as the CG goes... The CG was handled very well in this film, and it was done better than it was in the first film. In the first film, it was pretty good for the first two acts, but then the final act, it it took a nosedive, especially when we got to the ba battle between Killmonger and Black Panther, or, or T'Challa, rather, in both of their Black Panther outfits. That one kind of fell flat for me because it looked like a PlayStation 2 cutscene, um, but we realized that a lot of their budget was probably siphoned out near the end when they're doing post-production and it was put into Infinity War, which came out three months later because we saw how Thanos looked and Thanos looked damn near real life. Like I'll still say to this day, Thanos in, in Infinity War is the best looking CG I've ever seen in my life, ever. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, going back to the CG though, I thought they did a very good job with the CG, especially with the underwater scenes in uh, Talokan. Um, I would say the CG that they used with Shuri when she was in the Black Panther outfit looked very well done. Uh, I would say the CG that was used uh, in the middle of the film when Namor was flooding Wakanda, it looked very well. Him flying in the air with his with his uh, ankle wings, whatever, it didn't look corny at all. In fact, I thought it looked pretty badass. Like, the way he was kind of flying in the air, it almost looked like, you know, for all my basketball heads uh, listening, it looked like he was kind of doing, like, a Euro step on clouds and shit like that. I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was really cool. Um, but yeah, I thought they handled the CG very well. I also thought that they handled the fight choreography very well. That was, a, that was another thing that I kind of had a little bit of an issue with, with the first film. Now, as far as like ritual combat and stuff like that, I thought those scenes were dope. Don't, no complaints whatsoever when it came to the ritual combat scenes. Uh, the scenes in the casino, the fight scenes in the casino were pretty cool as well. Uh, Black Panther fighting off those uh, militia soldiers in Nigeria at the beginning of the film was pretty dope as well. But it fell off for me whenever T'Challa was in his new Black Panther suit. So a lot of what he did was like stunts and like parkour and stuff like that. And then by the time we got to like the final scene with him fighting Killmonger, again, it was the CG that kind of took it out for me. But in this film, I thought they corrected a lot of the fight choreography um, just overall, fight choreography in the first one was pretty good for the most part. It's just like when we got to T'Challa in the uh, in the new Black Panther suit, we didn't really get to 
see the full potential of his combat skills. Uh, but in this one, overall, even with Shuri in the Black Panther suit, it still looked pretty good. Um, but yeah, the fight choreography w was pretty badass. I love the fight scenes between Okoye and Atuma, who is one of the generals for Namur. And I love the fact that they had this level of mutual respect for one another as warriors. So, like, I loved it when Atuma was witnessing Okoye fight on three of his soldiers with no help. And then he's like, yo, she's mine. And then they're fighting... And he's kind of like outclassing her, basically, but he's still giving her a chance to fight. He's like, "Yo, pick up your weapon. Let, like, let, let let's do this." But then he wins that first bout. But then the second bout, when she has her Midnight Angel um, outfit, she's like, "Warrior, let's go, round two. So I really like that aspect. I, th I thought that that aspect between the two generals was really cool. Like that mutual respect. I, I was I was really digging that vibe. Um, but yeah, the fight scenes and the fight choreography was pretty solid from, from what I liked. So I think that was, a, and also, also a big plus for me, uh, for this film as well. Um, Killmonger. Killmonger's appearance in this film, I absolutely loved. Because I said for years, like ever since the first Black Panther film, I said, if you're going to include Killmonger in this movie at any capacity, it has to be of him in the ancestral plane. That's the only way it makes sense for him to be in this film. Otherwise, his death was for nothing. And I'm so glad they, they, that they did not retcon that at all whatsoever. Not only that, but his appearance as a specter, or not a specter, but more, but more so a spirit in the, in the ancestral plane made sense based on how they crafted it. She was expecting to see her mom, and heck, I was kind of expecting her to see T'Challa in the ancestral plane because if he is with the ancestors and she is T'Challa's brother, would that not be the first or one of the immediate faces that you would expect for her to see? But then we see Killmonger mainly because of the emotions that are that are being driven within her at that moment in time. So that made sense from that narrative standpoint. So I really applaud Kugler and Joe Robert Cole for writing that in there as well. It made sense in, in that regard. That way you can kind of get around the potential plot hole of not seeing T'Challa in the ancestral plane when all Black Panthers or members of that royal family commune in that space. So why not see him there? And they explain it with the internal turmoil that she's going through. So it made sense narratively. So I really appreciate that. And then as far as other plot points I enjoyed or other things within the movie that I enjoyed... Uh, the music was on point. I had no doubts in my mind that Ludwig Gorenson was going to kill it once again as the uh, the score composer. He did a great job. Uh, set designs are dope. Costume designs are dope. Um, it was a Ruth Carter who designed the costumes in the first one. She did that again in the second in the second film. Um, and then the global aspect of the film was really cool as well. Like it felt like a geopolitical thriller. Like we were going from Wakanda to the states to the UK. Were we in the UK? I can't even remember. I know that we were in the first one, uh, to Telokan, uh, and what have you. So like, I really enjoyed that. Like, they really keep that geopolitical aspect in the film, which is what the story of Black Panther is essentially. So I'm really happy with that. Um, as a side note, I did mention the music. Um, I did listen to the original soundtrack for Wakanda Forever, and I didn't like it as much as I did the one for the previous film. While I do appreciate the fact that they have a lot more, uh, a lot more international artists on here, like a lot more uh, Latino and Mesoamerican artists, as well as a lot more African artists, like continental African artists, I didn't get that same level of cohesion that I did in the first film or in the first soundtrack because that one was being curated by Kendrick Lamar, and he made it a point to kind of tell a story of you know T'Challa and Indajako or Killmonger for short. So I really appreciated that aspect of the first album, whereas this one, it kind of felt like your standard OST for any other kind of film in general. Just get a bunch of artists together, put some music on there, and boom goes the dynamite. That's what it felt like to me. But I do appreciate the fact that they did get a lot more, um, a lot more cultural uh, influences on the, on this art on this uh, album. So that's my little tidbit about that, about that, but that has no bearing on how I feel about the movie as a whole. But anyways, those are my pros for the film. That being said, let's get to the cons. All right, so let's get to the cons of the movie, all right? So 
while I did say that I enjoyed the performances of all the characters in general, I would say that one of my cons when it comes to the characters um, comes in the form of Riri Williams. Now, that's not for me to say that I didn't like the character. I did enjoy a character, generally speaking. However, I felt like there was a little too much time spent on that character. And they essentially made her the MacGuffin of the film. And because of that, because of making her like a plot point of the film, she also felt like a liability in a lot of aspects. In fact, it was very similar to how America Chavez was treated in uh, the Multiverse of Madness, uh, Doctor Strange. And I didn't like that. Like, I get that you're trying to promote the fact that she has her own series coming out on Disney Plus either next year or like two years from now. But by making her appearance come, come across as a bit of a commercial, it took away from the film for me, at least. I do like the character in terms of the personality that, that, that they give her. But it felt like a rehash of the Tony Stark story. And I get it. It's basically what they were doing in the comics and what have you. And I haven't read the Riri comics and what have you. But again, I feel like the MCU at this point right now in Phase 4, or throughout the entirety of Phase 4 rather, we've gotten so many callbacks to Tony Stark. So many, especially with Spider-Man. I get it, Spider-Man was basically his understudy. But nonetheless, there's been so many callbacks to Tony Stark and everything. And it's like, I feel like... We should be at the point now where we got to let that go. We got to let that go. And like the references I saw, like her building the suit from scratch and then her, you know, clanking the, the iron and stuff like that and, and, and what have you. Like, again, too many callbacks to, you know, Tony Stark and, and Iron Man and what have you. Like, I'm ready to like distance myself from from that. Like, I get it. Like, he was a staple in the MCU. He saved the world. I get it. But like. We need to have new stories be told. And I felt like watching her in the film was just a rehash of Tony Stark. I'd rather we save that at the very... Like, if we are going to get to that, I'd rather we just save that for her own series. Instead of this being, like, some sort of, like, cross-promotion for it. But I get it. You gotta get subscribers up and everything like that. That was my that was my only gripe with her. I felt like if she had just gotten, like, a cameo in this in this movie then I would have been okay with it. Like, a 5-10 minute cameo, I'll be like, okay, cool, we'll see you next time. But, like, they made her... They made her the MacGuffin of the film to the point where she was a liability, where she got herself and Shuri kidnapped. She got Queen Ramona killed. I mean, and I get it, these events were used to progress Shuri's story and her arc and what have you. But, I don't know, to a certain extent, I feel like you could have done a different way to do it as opposed to just making her the liability of the film. So that was my gripe. Uh, with Riri Williams, but I do like her character. I just felt like she would have been more useful as, you know, a cameo as opposed to being the MacGuffin of the film outright. In fact, if they had used her the same way that they used Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War, I would have been happy with that because we already knew that Spider-Man was going to come with his own film. We, we knew that, but it didn't take attention away from the overall plot of that film in particular. Whereas I feel like this one kind of did. And like there are certain things I was looking forward to seeing in this film that I did not see where that could have been swapped out for the amount of screen time uh, that was dedicated to her. So that was my only gripe. And I'm going to get to that later on, actually. Uh, but that was my main gripe with that character. But overall, I didn't I didn't hate her character. I thought her character was fine. Just she got a little bit too much more screen time, screen time than I would have liked. Speaking of that, I felt Umbaku did not get enough screen time. That was, I mean, you would think that with his immense popularity from the first film and him being like a fan favorite along with Shuri, you would think that he would have gotten a lot more screen time. Whereas in this one, it felt, it kind of felt the same. It felt like he got as much or maybe a little bit more screen time than he did in the first film, but not by much though. And we're talking about a film that's two hours and 41 minutes. So you're thinking, okay, Umbaku's going to get, like, some serious runtime now that, you know, we don't have T'Challa in the film anymore, now that we don't have Zuri in the film anymore, now that we don't have, um, um, what's my guy's name, Wakabi in the film anymore, and now that we don't have Killmonger in the film. You would think that this is his time to shine, but really, he just gets relegated to, you know, comedic banter, a few action scenes, and then, you know, some big brother or big cousin talk 
uh, with Shuri in a few scenes. That's about it, really. So while I did say that he makes the most out of the scenes that he's in, my gripe is the fact that he got so little screen time. So that was another con that I had with this film. I'm like, this is one of your most popular characters from your first film. And with the losses of Chadwick, obviously, but then also from a character standpoint with the loss of T'Challa, Wakabi, Zuri, and Killmonger, would you not assume that this is going to give him more time to shine? It's like having some of the best players on your team being injured and the next person on the bench, it, it's time for that person to shine. And we've seen that person shine in certain moments. This is what if, this is what that should have been, but we didn't get that. And I, I thought that was a hugely missed opportunity. Even though we know that he's going to be king of Wakanda in the next film or in a potential you know Disney Plus series, we still needed more from him. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. I also felt like Nakia didn't really get a whole lot of screen time. Like, we didn't even see her during the first act of the film. She only got revealed during the second act of the film. And then, you know, she had to rescue, you know, um, Princess Shuri and and Riri and what have you. But I felt like we could have gotten more screen time from her as well. Like, she was a very important and pivotal character in that first film. I don't feel as though we got as much screen time with her as we should have, in my opinion, at least. Maybe some people feel different, but I felt like she was one of the characters I was looking forward to seeing the most in this film. And I felt like her screen time was somewhat minimal, in my opinion. But anyways, that's just my opinion on that. Also, when it comes to screen time, I felt as though Everett Ross and Valentina, who I didn't even expect to be in this film, but makes sense... I felt like they were in separate movies. Like, I get it. They, they they talked about Wakanda. They talked about what was happening in the country and everything in between. But I can't help but feel like they were separate from the film. I felt like they were kind of dealing with their own stuff. And I don't know if it's because of the fact that neither of them were in Wakanda or neither of them had any face-to-face um, interactions with any of the Wakandans. Like, Ross was just speaking with them through his phone. And I get it. I get it. I totally understand why. It makes sense. But it just felt like they were in something completely different. And so I felt like maybe not so much Valentina because I didn't even expect her to be in the film. But I felt like even Ross with the amount of, evolve- the amount of involvement they had within the first film, the relationship they had with T'Challa and the Wakandans, I thought for sure he'd have a bit more screen time, especially given the fact that they saved his life in the first film. Right. So that was, so that was something that kind of threw me off. Um, and then again, going back to screen time, when it comes to this film, the name Black Panther is in the film. It's it's literally the title, the main title of the film, Wakanda, Wakanda Forever being the subtitle of the film. But the main title is Black Panther. And yet, we don't see Black Panther until the third and final act of the film. Third act being the final act. We don't see Black Panther until the final act of the film. And I get it. The storytelling that they decided to go with was leading up to that reveal. But when you have a film that is titled after your main character, and we're not talking about Shuri, the Black Panther. We're just talking about Black Panther. And we don't see that character until the final act of the film in the suit and everything, doing badass Black Panther things, that's a problem. That is a problem. That's a huge problem. And that leads me to my next point. The absence of T'Challa was felt heavily, heavily. I felt it myself. You know, me whether it's me being a fanboy of T'Challa slash Black Panther, me reading the comics or what have you, or, or even just lurking back uh, to the first film, I mean, when you go back to the first film, the first time you see Black Panther was within like the opening, what, two minutes when uh, T'Chaka was was in his prime as Black Panther and he confronts his brother about him stealing Vibranium. And then even after that, a few minutes afterwards, you go back to present day and we see T'Challa as Black Panther whooping some ass in Nigeria. But in this film, we don't get Black Panther until the third act. And it just shows you how much a lot of people took T'Challa for granted in that first film. I mean, for example, 
one of the main critiques I heard from people, whether it was from fans or from people in the media and what have you, they were saying that T'Challa was the least interesting character in the entire film. When I would beg to differ and say that he was the linchpin, he was the fulcrum, he was the pinnacle of that of that cast. Because you had so many people with either they had some boisterous and flamboyant personalities or they had a very brooding demeanor about themselves. T'Challa was a person who kept everything in line. He was the one that centered everything. Very similar to how Captain America has a very stoic, you know, personality, what have you. But yet he centers everything. He puts everything together, whether it's in uh, the Winter Soldier or or if it's in if it's in uh, uh, Civil War or even in in the Avengers movies, where all the Avengers have these boisterous personalities, and he's just like the one that kind of keeps everything centered together you you felt that absence in this film and that could have been remedied if they had recasted if they had recasted that easily could have been remedied but the fact that we don't get to see black panther the person that we came to see or the figure that we came to see you don't have him or her until the final act of the film that's a problem that is a huge problem. That was one of my biggest gripes of the film. Huge problem. While I loved everything else about the film, that was like a huge, huge red flag for me. And speaking of T'Challa, and this is more of like a plot hole that I found. I do like the fact that they just opened up the, the movie with, you know, him having the illness and then doing the funeral and everything. Just kind of like get it out of the way, essentially. What I don't like, however, well, apart from, you know, killing off the character, you know, just stating the obvious. What I don't like, well, not only, you know, killing off the character, but having it mirror, you know, the real life events of Chadwick Boseman. But what I don't like is the fact that they don't even name what this mysterious illness is. They just say this ill, this unknown illness. And I, and I get it. You're kind of alluding to the real life aspect of it possibly being cancer or whatever, because that's what killed Chadwick. But we're talking about Wakanda here. Wakanda is the most technologically advanced nation in the world. They have cures for damn near everything. I mean, even in the last movie, I mean, take my, take the comics out of the equation for a, se- for, for a second. Even in the movie, in the, in the first movie, Everett Ross was shot in his spine. In real life, this man would have been paralyzed. But they took him to Wakanda. First of all, they stabilized him with a, with a piece of jewelry, okay? And then they took him to Wakanda, and they fixed him and stitched him up like he was brand new. Brand new. Man was walking on his feet and everything by, by the next day. Even when T'Challa was going blow for blow against you know Killmonger, and he ended up bludgeoning the spear into his chest t'challa even alluded to the fact that they could possibly still heal him you know just give it time we'll get you to the lab and we could possibly still heal you with a fucking vibranium spear bludgeoned into his freaking heart he was still stating maybe we can still heal you so you mean to tell me that people can recover instantly from bullet wounds like critical bullet wounds i'm not talking about like critical bullet wounds and potential spears to the chest. But we don't have anything at all that can cure someone of an illness. I mean, I don't know. That's a pretty big plot hole in my opinion. Like, I figured that if you're going to kill off the T'Challa character, narratively, it would have made sense to have him die in battle. Even if he died in battle against against uh, Namor, to set him up as like the big bad of this film, you could do that. Or, and I know people were expecting Doctor Doom to show up, but if you wanted to like really set someone up, and you really want to be very gung ho about your decision on killing off the T'Challa character, you easily could have had him face off, and maybe in like a post credit scene, for example. You could have had him face off against Doom and Doom, you know, takes his life, whatever, and then have the reveal being that it's Dr. Doom who did it, basically. Like, you just see his lifeless body and then you see, you know, a throat or a hand grab his throat or whatever, 
and then you pan upwards and you see that's Dr. Doom. That would have been the, that probably would have been the best way possible to explain to Chala's death and to set up a new big bad for the next phase or the next two phases of the, of the MCU going forward. You could have done that, but to say that he died of an illness, quote unquote, like come on, man. Like we know you we know you're basically alluding to cancer, but again, it doesn't fall in line with what Wakanda can do as far as treating illnesses and what have you, or curing them rather. Even her trying to make the heart-shaped herb and what have you, like still narratively it doesn't make sense because T'Challa still has the herb in his body because the last time we saw him was when he was fighting against um, Thanos and his minions in Endgame and he looked pretty spry to me. So why would we need to create another synthetic version of the, of the heart-shaped herb to save his life? It doesn't make sense. If anything, technically, it would take the Black Panther powers away from him since he already has it in his body. And that would just further exasperate, you know, the, the illness that's in his body. So, again, I thought that was a plot hole that didn't need to be there if you really were going to explain how, how T'Challa died, in my opinion, in this film. So that I didn't like in the film. Uh, on top of that, they never explained what happened to Wakanda during that five-year blip period when Thanos snapped everything away. I know that was going to be a huge plot point for the ori original script of the film before Chadwick passed away and what have you. But, and given the circumstances and, and what everyone did and how they pivoted, there wasn't even a mention of it. At least in everything that we've seen in Phase 4. At the very least, we've had a mention of it or we've had sightings of it and how people reacted once they were blipped back into existence. We didn't even get a mention of it in this film. And that was one of the things I wanted to know um, after I saw Endgame. I wanted to know, yo, how did people cope during that five-year period? Like, who was, like, what, was there a Black Panther? Was there at least a ruler, a king, queen? Like, who was leading Wakanda during that five-year blip period? And they didn't even answer those questions. Any of it. Like, that, to me, I think that outside of, you know, not recasting T'Challa, you know, obviously, that was probably, like, the biggest gripe for me. Because I wanted to see that. And this wasn't even, like, on some, you know, fantasy fiction coming to life or wanting to come to life. Like, we've literally heard explanations, albeit some minor ones, as to what happened during the blip period in every other Marvel project that we've seen up until now. And Black Panther is like the only one, one of the only ones where we didn't get an explanation. And that really annoyed me. That really annoyed me. And then on top of that, another thing that annoyed me, one of the things that annoyed me the most, which I was hoping would not happen, but it did come to fruition, was the fact that Nakia has a son or a child in general. Which further amplifies the black stereotype, or one of many black stereotypes, but this one being regard, be, being in regards to the black single mother. The black single mother, and I get it, we know why, and we know how T'Challa died, but nonetheless, you, you now have a little black boy growing up without a black father. And to me, it's like, why are we perpetuating the stereotype? Why? Like, I know T'Challa wasn't incarcerated. We know he didn't die in a drive-by shootout. I, I get it. But again, the notion of the black single mother with a son, or just with a child in general, but with a son especially, it irks my soul to no avail. Because now it's like, okay, well, you name this kid T'Challa Jr. So that's one thing. So now we got to wait for, what, like a 20-year time jump to see this guy turn into the to uh, to the Black Panther, and even then, it's not the same T'Challa. It's not. It's not the same T'Challa. It's not the same one that's had wars with Namor. It's not the one who's who's fought Killmonger. It's not the one who went to war with Doctor Doom. It's not the one who was the leader of you know the Fantastic Four. It's not the same T'Challa. I'm sorry. I just don't like these stereotypes being injected into a fantasy film of all things. Save it for your Save the, the Rec Center dance movies. Save that for your hood dramas, your ghetto comedies. But don't put it into a fantasy film where I get to see people who look like me doing badass things, but then we got to come back to reality with a fucking stereotype like this. Nah, I think 
Coogler and company dropped the ball with that, in my personal opinion. We did not need to see a single black mom having to raise a single black child, but uh, a black child by herself. We didn't need to see that. We didn't need to. So that to me was a gripe in the film that I had. One of the biggest gripes in the film that I had that I was hoping we wouldn't see, but eventually we did. And that's where we're at. But that being said, that leads me to my overall thoughts on the movie. So my overall thoughts on the movie are this. Watching this movie, while I thought it was pretty good, also reiterated the importance as to why T'Challa should have been recasted in this film. And as I pointed out earlier, there was a huge void that was left in the wake of of, of killing the T'Challa character. And I know the argument is, well, it would have been too soon, even though they recasted um, the the character of, of, of Thunderbolt Ross when William Hurt died, and they recasted um, my man, what's his name, Harrison Ford. And I heard nothing about that whatsoever. I heard, I'd never heard any comments about it being disrespectful or disrespecting the legacy, but never heard any of that. William Hurt died in 2021. And Harrison Ford, sorry, I was about to say Harrison Barnes. Harrison Ford was recasted as that character a year later. I didn't hear a word of it being disrespectful or anything like that. But with T'Challa being being recasted previously from Chadwick Boseman, that was disrespectful? Okay. Okay, we're moving the goalposts now. Okay, all right. So, anyways... Watching this movie just emphasized the fact that you needed to recast T'Challa. And there are plenty of great actors, black actors, black male actors in Hollywood who would have done the role justice. Aldous Hodge, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Elan Noel, just those guys, just to name a few, would have been great choices to recast as T'Challa. And the art, and I know some people will say, oh, well, you know, people would have been upset if you had recast the role. Okay, yeah, but guess what? People were upset when they didn't recast the role. We at least have 60,000 signatures documented that confirm that people were upset that, that the role wouldn't be recasted going forward. And those are just the ones that are on record. I'm sure there's a bunch of people out in the world who are a fan of the first Black Panther movie who are upset that that character's legacy will not be continued. And don't tell me it's going to continue through the little boy. No, it's not. Like, when you have recasting, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I've talked about this ad nauseum, but when you have actor after actor get recasted for a particular role, whether it's Batman, Superman, James Bond, the Joker, et cetera, et cetera, you are continuing on the legacy that that previous actor had laid down. That is what you're doing. It's not replacing somebody. You're passing the baton to the next person to continue the race going forward. And I think a lot of people, including Ryan Kluger and Nate Moore, missed the ball on that. And they, and they missed the concept and idea of that. I don't think they were trying to, you know, write out the character, uh, character, you know, vindictively or anything like that. I truly believe that they believe that they're doing their best to pay tribute to Chadwick. I believe that. But I feel like they were flawed in their approach, in my personal opinion. Um, so that's my thoughts on on that. Beyond that, however, um, I do appreciate the fact that this didn't turn into some, you know, woke feminist agenda movie where it's like, we don't need a man. You know, a woman can be Black Panther. Like, I'm glad they didn't do that. I didn't get that vibe at all. That was one of the things that I was scared about coming into this movie because just in general, there's been a lot of rhetoric over like the last year or two with regards to it, you know, just, you know, man shaming and especially when like when it comes to black men as well. And there's been a few loud voices within the black female community where they've just openly just disrespected their black male counterparts. I'm not saying all black women are doing this, but there's been a very loud section of black women who've been doing this over the last two years. And and it just seems to be normalized. So I was afraid that that was going to carry into this film. And I'm very happy that it didn't. Um, that said, I think 
with what they've had to work with over the last two years, whether it was COVID, um, Letitia Wright, the actor who plays Shuri, her being injured on set and having the uh, production being delayed because of that, but also some of the self-inflicting things that she did with regards to talking about you know COVID and the vaccine and whether or not it's a hoax and what have you. I think with everything that they, they had to deal with, including and especially the death of Chadwick Boseman, that they churned out a very, a very solid film, in my opinion. Like, this is not a bad movie at all. Objectively speaking, despite my thoughts, this is not a bad movie at all. It's a pretty good film. I don't think it's better than the first one, but there are certain aspects of, the, of this film that they do better than the first, but I still think that the first one is still... The, the the gold standard of the Black Panther franchise, in my opinion. Um, and then what I find interesting are the things that they kind of leave at the end of the movie. So Umbaku potentially being king. I mean, they're definitely alluding to that, and I think he will be the king of Wakanda going forward, where Shuri will be the Black Panther, and it's still canon to the MCU as far as being... Um, Black Panther and, and ruler of Wakanda being separate because they introduced that concept when T'Challa was introduced in Civil War where he was still the prince, but he was the Black Panther where his father, T'Chaka, was, was the king of the nation. So they're at least consistent with that, which I can appreciate. Um, Namor or Namor or Kukukan. <laughs> uh, him, you know, being in the shadows and kind of operating on his own merit and on his own terms and what have you. Uh, with Wakanda as being an ally to them for the time being, uh, based on what happened, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, the world, how the world views Wakanda uh, going forward now is going to be very interesting to see in other projects. Um, oh, yeah, one gripe that I forgot to mention. The fight, the final fight between Shuri and Namor, while it was entertaining to, to, to certain degrees, I thought it was a little unbelievable. And again, I'm one who's been talking about suspension of disbelief and what have you. One of the major gripes that I had with Shuri advancing as a Black Panther is like her fighting ability is very basic. And we didn't see any hints of her being becoming a better fighter within the movie. So when she goes up against Namor, someone who has fought for centuries and has centuries worth of battle experience, her being able to go toe-to-toe toe -to -toe and blow-for-blow blow with Namor, despite, you know, using things like technology and using the ship to kind of burn him out and using... Like, I get they create certain plot points to justify her being able to best him in combat. It still didn't come across as believable. I mean, you have somebody like Okoye who was not able to match the strength of Atuma in their first go-around, with her being arguably the second-best warrior in Wakanda. Arguably. A debate could be made between her and uh, M'Baku. But you're talking about someone who has years, who's trained her entire life since childhood to be the protector of Wakanda. But then we get Shuri, who has very little battle experience whatsoever, who's able to best name more in combat? Yeah. Now, again... This is one of those scenarios where you need T'Challa. So, again, that was one of my gripes as well. But, nonetheless, overall, how I view the film, um, my rating for the film, if you will, if I had to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, my cool ratings, if you will, I will give Black Panther Wakanda Forever 7.5 cools out of 10. All right? 7.5 out of 10. I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable. Things in there that I liked, things that in there that I didn't like. But overall, I thought it was a solid film. Um, I would not call this the best film in Phase 4 of the MCU. I think that right goes to Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I thought what they did with that movie was phenomenal, given the fact that it was a very obscure and unknown character to the mainstream public. A new character in the MCU. Uh, someone whose backstory that we, we know very little about. Fight choreography was amazing. The writing was dope. Characters were fleshed out well. And Wen Wu, as the Mandarin, is easily a top five villain in the MCU upon impact. I'd even say top three. Um, they did a lot of great things with that film. 
I think that was the standard of Phase 4. And that was like one of the first films of Phase 4 as well. So it actually led me to believe that Phase 4 was was off to a good start, theatrically at least. Um, but then, yeah, not so much. <laughs> uh, but then I would say that was number one for me uh, as far as Phase 4. And then number two, you can make a debate between Black Panther Wakanda Forever and Spider-Man No Way Home. What gets Spider-Man No Way Home over the hump was the gimmick of having all the past Spider-Man uh, characters from past movies as well as the past villains or what have you. That's the main thing that, that drew people in. Uh, but yeah, you can debate it as number two or number three. It's definitely a top three movie of Phase 4 for sure. Like, that's not debatable at all. Uh, but yeah, overall, 7.5 out of 10. I liked it. Things, there's a lot of things I liked about it. There's a lot of things I did not like about it. But overall, it was a solid offering. And I think it's worth a second viewing. In my opinion, it's definitely worth a second viewing. Uh, but yeah, what did you guys think of Black Panther? And I'm assuming that by now you've already seen it. If not, I just spoiled it for you, but I gave you the spoiler in advance. But what do you think about it either way? Uh, hit me up on all my socials and let me know. But nonetheless, we've reached the end of this uh, special airing of Cool Radio. So I want to thank y'all for tuning in. It was a blast. Had fun. If you guys liked the movie, hit me up. If you didn't like the movie, hit me up. Either way, I want to know your thoughts. Uh, but nonetheless, we will be back with uh, more episodes. I still need to review King's Disease Part 3 from Nas because I've been having a blast with that album. So I'll definitely give you a review on that. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other stories I want to get to as well, like Elon Musk and him destabilizing the hell out of Twitter. We got to get to that as well. Uh, and a few other things in between. But nonetheless... Uh, thank y'all for tuning in. Really appreciate it. And as you already know, Cool Radio is a division of Cool Click Media and Entertainment. Reminding you each and every day that we are out here creating our own legacies. Keep it gravy and wavy. I'm out of here. Peace. Cool.